0: Well, it's here, the final episode of the New Social Contract podcast, and we're just in time to catch the latest iteration of proposed changes to Australia's higher education system announced by Minister Tian on a winter's day in June.
1: As a result of the coronavirus pandemic, we're going to see more demand for places in the higher education system. We want to incentivise students to undertake courses that will give them the skills to take the jobs of the future, to look at teaching, to look at nursing, to look at allied health, engineering, to look at IT, because we know the jobs of the future will be in those areas.
0: So what is behind Minister Tien's announcements? They've been widely criticised as an attack on the humanities, but is this really their main purpose? How might they help us to think through the challenges universities are facing and the ways they might be remade? Today on The New Social Contract, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Gwillem Croucher, a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education as we, for the final time, look at how the relationship between universities, the state and the public might be reshaped as we live through the COVID-19 pandemic. In today's episode, we're going to look beyond Minister Tian's proposals to ask three questions. What is the vision for higher education that lies behind the coalition government's plans? What bigger questions about universities do they raise? And what might be some of the other ways those questions could be answered? We started the New Social Contract podcast back in April of 2020. At the time, we were just entering the depths of the corona pandemic. Divorced from our daily lives, we already knew the impact of this time would have far-reaching effects, but the consequences for higher education in Australia were still unclear. So let's take a look back at where we've been.
1: Universities have not really had to face an ongoing period of stasis or a reduction in demand throughout their history. We're in new territory here.
0: We began by examining the history of the social contract between universities and the public.
1: There have been a number of really profound disruptions within the Australian university system. The Great Depression, the Second World War, and then Reconstruction. We could think of the Dawkins changes, which brought enormous mergers and amalgamations into the system.
0: Then we turned to the more recent past to explore the context of the crisis. They discovered what really was a magic money-making machine. You could bring in international students and this would pay for more research. But as we can see now, there was a weakness in this circle. And in our bonus episode, we heard the voices of students and university staff to get an insight into what was happening on the ground at campuses across Australia. COVID-19 has made it really clear the extent to which the university relies on casual staff and also relies on the ability to get rid of us when it needs to. You can't read the Zoom in the same way that you can read the room.
1: International students, like when we come, we have so many dreams.
0: And in episode three, we tried to figure out what it all meant for different parts of the sector. I don't think higher education in this country has ever faced a crisis as deep and as great as COVID-19. we thought about the different ways in which the public mission of the university might be remade by climate change.
1: We are at a crossroads. I fear that the default pathway will be returned to the way things were. For me, that actually means that we'd miss a great opportunity to do something different and
0: to leverage off our skills and capacity as a nation to have some leadership that takes us into an Australia that we want to have rather than just by default. And I think in particular, that means dealing with climate change. Universities, we have their temporal reach, we have the spatial reach to think across time periods, and we can actually help devise and find and give voice to much more useful ways of thinking about the world and humans' role in it. And how the role of higher education is entangled with the needs of the nation's changing workforce. I don't think anyone can realistically expect to exit a qualification get a job and stay in that job
1: for their working life, those days are long gone. Employers have become very content and they're used to be able to get their pick of the underutilised labour markets, they can pick who they want. They keep bleeding on about skill shortages. At the same time, we've seen a huge decline in employers investing in the skills of their workforce.
0: As well as how universities are building a new kind of relationship with the communities they serve. The pursuit of knowledge and the discovery of knowledge is such a valuable resource for society and for community. Uh, It always does baffle me a little bit that there isn't much more scaffolded and strong link to translation. Why would you develop that knowledge and then not do everything you can to see it used?
1: We will not return to the old normal uh, once we work our way through this pandemic. And I think we'll see universities partner more effectively and more obviously because I think in the end, universities will no longer be seen as the single repository or the epicentre for the creation of knowledge.
0: And finally, we heard from two people whose job it is to lead a university and to shape the policy settings in which universities operate. UTS Vice-Chancellor Attila Brungs.
1: A university is a public institution. We exist solely for public good. What I would like to see is that ethos continue call it your new social contract, where our public institutions are fit for purpose to help our society prosper in the long term.
0: And the Shadow Minister for Education and Training, Tanya Plibersek. So what then does it mean to be a public university in the 21st century? I think it probably means much the same as it did a thousand years ago. It's a nourishing of the individual and a nourishing of our society. That's the responsibility of universities if you strip it all away. It's giving every person the opportunity of developing their mind, their spirit, their understanding of the world, their passions. But it's also giving us as a society a way of developing our economic wealth, but our intellectual wealth as well. So where does that leave us? With Minister Tian's proposals for differential student contributions on the table and a plan for research funding yet to be announced, what does it all add up to? Can we discern the outlines of what the current government thinks the relationship between universities, government and the public should be?
1: It's definitely about some students paying more and some students paying less with the the logic that they want to incentivise some areas of study and disincentivise other areas of study.
0: That is a pretty big departure from the logic of HECS, which until now still is, attached to expected graduate earnings and cost of the degree. So now we're shifting towards a logic of differential fees based on expected job prospects or needed job areas.
1: This is one of the most important things about these reforms. The government says that it's wanting to subsidise those degrees that have greater job prospects. But that's not entirely accurate. There's definitely a dose of ideology in here. Part of it is that there's not a lot of an evidence base that sits underneath how much you charge students. It's always going to be partly judgment. It's a normative question. It's about what people think students should pay. It's about what's politically acceptable. There's no, no magic to it.
0: Well, it seems pretty evident, that there's a kind of shift in the balance of where funding is coming from, that overall government is putting in less, overall individuals are putting in more, even though the distribution of that is shifting across different disciplines in different ways. And then I'm also wondering about what the implications are for moving towards a divided sector or differentiating the sector more so that teaching and research goes together in some institutions and other institutions are focusing perhaps more on teaching only. That seems to me to be the underlying logic.
1: There's obviously incentive in this package for some universities to provide some degrees rather than others, so therefore focus on some areas. But whether it really does anything to differentiate the system, I'm not entirely convinced. And the reason for that is, at the moment, a lot of the younger institutions offer many of the subjects in large numbers that the government is trying to incentivise. Some of the ones that they're trying to disincentivise tend to be at the older and quite popular larger universities, you know, the G08 and others. So whether it will have any real effect in the long run, I'm not convinced. The second really important thing here is to think about how students are going to respond. You know, if students benefiting from the HEX, the HELP system, which they are, and as it was designed, it was supposed to and certainly does mean that students don't face anywhere near as large upfront costs, they don't have to pay fees, then there's nothing to stop them, you know, doing an arts degree. And although, you know, humanities degrees are going to become quite expensive, over the course of a lifetime, the loan terms are pretty good. So these may remain very popular degrees, The other key thing to think about is that the amount that any university receives from an art student, assuming that they do all art subjects during their degree, um, will actually increase. The student contribution is the reason for that. And although the direct government subsidy is reducing, then the net is greater. So there's really an incentive for universities to offer these degrees.
0: We've had a lot of attention in the media to the raising cost of certain degrees, including the humanities, and then this question of whether or not it will affect student behaviour. But buried in those documents that were released on the Minister's website were also measures around regional support and Indigenous support. Do you think that's like going to be enough to get it across the line in terms of
1: the Senate? It certainly will help. As we know, the politics of higher education in Australia is very much tied to the politics of support for the regions, rightly so in many ways. Some of the regional measures are some of the most important because they constrain the number of new Commonwealth supported places that will be offered to universities in the cities compared to those regional institutions. Many of the regional institutions have been ones that have been most affected by the downtown and international students. So perhaps this is one way that they can have a bit more certainty. Minister Tien's
0: proposals draw attention to several questions about universities that often go unstated. I asked Gwil what he thought lay behind the plans, what concepts they took for granted and what remained
1: unchanged. The one glaring omission, the elephant in the room, is that this doesn't directly provide any support for a downturn in the international market, as we're seeing now. It doesn't help universities restructure, transition from the fallout from that.
0: That's actually really important, isn't it? It it would be easy to look at these reforms and kind of get lost in them on their own terms, but they're, they're not really attending to the kind of broader context in
1: which COVID is playing out. Absolutely. I don't really do anything for adjusting how the research system is funded in Australia. And that's a huge part of it. Well, that's exactly it, isn't it?
0: I mean, they leave out research or more to the point, they remove it. I mean, at the moment, the Commonwealth Government subsidy for each student includes an amount that universities put towards the research component of most academic jobs, right? You know, it's often called 40, 40, 20, 40, teaching, 40 research and and 20 of service and administration, recognizing that teaching and research go together. But in aligning the total teaching funding that universities receive for each student with the cost of providing that teaching, don't these proposals in effect abolish that general research funding? Do you see this as a wedge being driven between teaching and research funding?
1: This is the question, you know, should universities be provided very separate money for research projects or should they just be given an amount and expected to, you know, give it to their teaching and research efforts? It's becoming clearer and clearer that, you know, the government probably interested in having quite separate teaching and research funding.
0: The government is not the only ones interested in that. There will be certain universities that are also interested in that.
1: When we talk about teaching and research as if they're very different activities, and in many ways, of course, they are, but they also do often inform each other. You know, when somebody is preparing a lecture or, you know, thinking about how they're going to teach students, they can also be thinking about research. When we talk about research funding, what we're really talking about is funding for people to do something, right? It's funding for time. So it's, you know, what people spend their time on.
0: But what I'm hearing you saying is that it's always going to be connected What's at stake is the nature of that connection, how much time is allocated to individuals, how feasible it is in a kind of work plan and what the reward system is maybe, what the status mechanisms are.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to get around the importance of the issue of status. Do people want to research because they want to research or do people want to research because they feel they have to research?
0: Another of the chestnuts buried in the pile of TN's announcements was the notion of a kind of teaching-only college. Does it matter what we call our institutions?
1: It might matter to Australians but it doesn't necessarily matter to other people around the world. Internationally the term university is used for all sorts of institutions so while we might have a particular idea or at least people in Australia think they have a particular idea of what constitutes a university That's not necessarily universal. So why have we become attached to that term? This probably goes back to the changes that happened during the Dawkins period because institutions then that were called a number of different things, schools, colleges, were given the choice about whether they wanted to be called a university and they all decided to become universities. And a kind of status
0: attached to that, like a, a class status that reflects vast politics of Australian society?
1: Part of the thing in Australia is that, you know, there are still many people in governments that think of universities as a bit of a middle-class signalling trick. Now, if these people are making decisions about the system, they make it become so. If they're the messages they're sending out, then, you know, rightly enough, that's how a lot of people think about it. So by that, Guil, you mean that
0: having a university degree is a sign that you are a member of the middle class. It's a performance, like wearing a certain kind of jacket.
1: Absolutely, both in the performative sense, but also in the sense that economists talk about it, You know, which it is literally a signal to the market of the type of person you are.
0: Were you suggesting that governments of both stripes have completely colluded in that and have introduced policies that enable the middle classes to maintain that performance.
1: Colluded's probably too strong a word, but that certainly appears the way that a lot of people in government continue to think about higher education. It doesn't matter what these institutions are called, it matters what they do. But just calling an institution a university doesn't mean that it has to have a comprehensive set of offerings across all different subjects. It doesn't mean that it has to have research programs in all those subjects. It doesn't mean that it has to have PhD degrees. This is an artefact partly of Australian history and now law, but it's not universal. There's nothing intrinsic to it. So it's it's one of the red herrings of our current debate.
0: It's a distraction, really.
1: I mean, are we more worried about what these institutions do or what they're called if we're more worried about what they're called, we're in a pretty dark place.
0: It also it leads to this next question of how much university is too much university, particularly if anything can be called one.
1: So when we say how much university is too much university is partly asking how much higher education is too much higher education. Higher education is one of the great inventions. it's undeniable that it is both good and popular. But having said that, it does come at a cost. so part of the question is, Does everybody need to do a three-year degree? Would they be better off with a two-year degree and be perfectly satisfied? Are we artificially forcing people to undertake more education than they would otherwise choose to do?
0: And do you think the answer to that question is different from different sides
1: of politics? There's definitely an element to that, but, you know, let's not forget that it's gone backwards and forwards over time between the two sides of politics. I don't think it's intrinsically one side of politics or the other. Different governments might have different views.
0: I guess I'm asking, is there appetite anywhere you see in the political spectrum for making the number of higher education places smaller? There might be discussion about what those places look like, what kinds of institutions they're in, but I'm not really seeing any arguments saying we need fewer people doing higher education.
1: No, and I can't really think of a country where that's a particularly prominent argument. There's obviously got to be a limit to how much education we can fund as a society. While people are in higher education, they're out of the workforce. It's a hugely expensive exercise for any society to fund. Does everybody need a master's degree? Well, not necessarily. Does everybody want a master's degree? Not necessarily. Are we incentivising people to get an undergraduate degree in Australia? Well, we are, in, you know, in many ways, it is easier to sign up to a three-year bachelor degree than it is to undertake some, you know, shorter courses, you know, especially some vocational courses where you may face higher upfront costs.
0: And a lot of the messages we're getting, both from inside universities and also policymakers, is that that is changing.
1: There is definitely effort, and it's not just this government, it's from a number of quarters to try and break that status prestige, which is that university will always be better. Well, it won't necessarily always be better. And that's not the way that many countries think about it. There are many countries where what we in Australia call vocational education is just as prestigious in many ways as university education. They're different.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really useful to think about That happened in Australia. If you think about the sort of diversity of knowledge institutions in Australia in the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, there were many. They included working men's clubs, they included Athenaeum societies, they included the Linnaean Society. They included technical secondary schools. They obviously included the Institutes of Technology, pharmacy colleges, you know, a whole set of professional-run teaching provision and a lot of kind of on-the-ground research that was done in private or in in the workplace. That sort of really diverse ecology of knowledge has kind of come to be monopolised in many ways. The university drew a lot of those bodies into itself and came to have a monopoly over the credentialization of knowledge in the second part of the 20th century. And it's benefited enormously from that. Our societies in some ways have benefited. But it is the story of a second part of the 20th century. And I guess what we're seeing is the possibility that that monopoly might be broken up.
1: And it's a monopoly, like a lot of monopolies, that has come at a pretty high cost, especially because the universities are quite path-dependent. They travel on a certain way and it becomes very hard to change what they do, and it also becomes hard to change the way we think about it.
0: Are there limits on what universities can and should do? Is something lost when we look to universities and we want them to be pseudo-states,
1: really? Universities do a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that they're everything factories. You know, they might have a role in doing things like you know, supporting economic growth through providing graduates, through providing research. But that doesn't mean that they should have the sole responsibility for economic growth in any country. I mean, it's even the same with research. They've obviously got a critical role to play in the nation's research effort, but they are not the only people that are contributing to that research effort. Unless we've got some really clear boundaries around what we want the institutions to do and most importantly not do, then we run into the trap where we ask them to do everything which they cannot do and then we damn them for it.
0: So what can we take from that when we're thinking about international versus domestic students in Australian universities?
1: The first question we have to ask is, are we treating every student the same? Is a student a student a student? And that's not straightforward the reason that we provide benefits to australian students that's because they're citizens there's a whole series of reasons for that it's about you know rights it's about the fact that you know they're part of communities that have contributed to the building of these institutions at the same time international students should be accorded the same respect rights and treatments as any student does in terms of their experience at a university I mean, that's an interesting question, though. Should we treat all students the same? Well, on one level, obviously, it's really important we do. On another level, um, there are some legitimate reasons why domestic students don't necessarily pay the same as international students.
0: We're used to sort of thinking about them in terms of markets, perhaps. There may be a consumer base abroad and a consumer base at home, but when you start thinking about them as citizens or as constituencies, or as publics, a kind of another set of responsibilities and obligations pertains.
1: Students have always been consumers of education. You know, fees have been a part of university education almost, you know, since it began in its you know, contemporary form. But equally, they've had other identities. And if we're not explicit about that, we can fall into a trap where we think of them as just one or the other, as just the consumer. And that comes with it a whole lot of assumptions about what their agency is, how they're able to act, what their responsibilities are, and indeed what our responsibilities, both as those within universities, but also as a community, have to those students. So as soon as we start thinking about international students as anything other than students first, irrespective of whether they're consumers, irrespective of whether they're citizens of different countries, we get to a really dangerous place because... We don't keep their education in full view. If we think about them just as consumers, we really run the risk of not thinking about all the other responsibilities we have. And many of them become citizens of Australia, number one.
0: And number two, as citizens of other polities, there's a real sort of pseudo-diplomatic function that's that becomes crucial. Absolutely. I've got a bit obsessed with this lately, which is like, what are the values and goals of our higher education system. Do you think it's possible to say what the government's sense of the goal of our education system is?
1: You can certainly see some of their goals, and they're pretty explicit about it, is that they really want the higher education system, as it's publicly supported, to be about providing people with the skills and experience and education to get them into the employment market. And that's their priority, and that's where they think that public funds need to be directed. But it's a hard question to ask of any government, of anybody to say, you know, what is the absolute goal of these institutions? Part of what we ask them to do is be on the edge, right? They are pushing the limits, they're generating new knowledge and there needs to be trust in their ability to do that. So there's always going to be a tension about exactly what their roles are. Otherwise, they, you know, wouldn't be able to do it and change and reflect community opinion. That said, there does need to be a debate in Australia about what we want our universities to do. We don't just want them to be skills factories. We obviously want them to be more than that. Universities all around the world are more than that. The question becomes how much public resources should we devote to the different activities we ask universities to do?
0: Which brings us back to where we started and the thorny issue of funding and where it should come from. But is that the only question at play? for governments and for publics when it comes to universities. I asked Will Croucher if there weren't other ways we might think about the relationship between universities, the state, and society.
1: So if we're thinking about the future of higher education, we've got some really important decisions to make in Australia. The first is about how much we want government specifically to control our university system or how much we want it controlled by the people that are tasked with running it. And the other decision we have to make is how much we want university to be supported through public subsidy versus how much we want students directly to pay. And those both have implications. If we want a university system where students don't pay anything upfront, um, that's quite expensive. And we've got to ask you know, whether that's really fair for those that don't want to attend university. If we want universities that are very tightly controlled by government, we have to ask what we're going to lose. So if you have this axis where on the vertical you have more or less direct government control and if you have on the horizontal more or less direct government subsidy, we can think about this having some pretty significant consequences. If we have universities that have significant government control and also significant direct government subsidy, then that really allows governments and politicians to decide what it is that these institutions should do. We take part of the the student decision out of it. We take part of the decision from those that run universities. We may end up with institutions that are asked only to teach and do no research. Equally, if institutions have less government control and less direct government subsidy, then we may end up with universities that look very much like private for profit institutions. You might end up with fee deregulation completely. Absolutely. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. If we think we can trust universities to constrain fees.
0: There are consequences in both those circumstances of universities facing the kind of adversity that we see them facing at the moment. So you might see with more government control and more government funding forced mergers. And I guess... With less government control and less direct public revenue, you might see institutions being allowed to collapse by government, So, which, which doesn't strike me as a particular good. So what about more student contribution and more government control? What would that look like?
1: So if we had a system where there was less government control but more direct government subsidy, we would have some quite strong and autonomous institutions. You know, while there might be really strong advantages to having universities that were allowed to be very autonomous, there was less government control and there was a big direct government subsidy, probably wouldn't be politically sustainable because, you know, these institutions wouldn't necessarily be as answerable to governments as they would demand.
0: And what about less subsidy and more government control?
1: In some ways that is a system that Australia has been moving towards over time as fees get higher and higher we'll have to see what the limit of that is but it does put universities and government in a very difficult position because where students are directly paying quite high fees then they start to think differently about their education and what they demand of it and it's you know may have expectations that can't be met it's not as simple as having institutions that are fully government funded and that are completely uh, autonomous without any government control. There are downsides to having, you know, to all of these quadrants and the sustainable institutions we want are not necessarily free to student. They may want student to pay fees because that brings with it certain responsibilities. We don't want institutions that are completely unaccountable to the public and the government but at the same time we want them to have enough autonomy to be able to do the really complicated job we ask them to do in Australian society. Key there then is thinking about who gets to set the settings. That's the role of policymakers and our politicians but
0: there have been different ways that governance structure has been organised across the history of the 20th century in Australia and elsewhere you know, there was a time when there was a thing called the Universities Grants Commission, and governments made allocations to it, and then it decided how those funds were distributed. And it didn't do so through competition or through a pseudo pseudo market. It did so by
1: what a set of visits to institutions. And so the you know the University Grants Commission, as you point out in the UK was like the Australian Universities Commission here and that was very much a negotiation between you know universities and the bodies about what they would offer. That was arm's length from ministerial control. They were there to have a whole view of the system and they were one step removed from the minister. Now, this doesn't mean that they always operated perfectly, but it's a very different model than having a minister directly deciding where to allocate funding to universities.
0: And it's a very different model than universities competing amongst themselves to meet terms set by the minister.
1: It's thinking about the system much more holistically. Having universities competing assumes that we can have a market that can operate efficiently.
0: I want to challenge this notion of competition a little bit because it it brings with it a sort of logic of growth and extracting value at some level and that you can extract more and more value either from individuals or from a kind of system that's maximised in some way. And I just wonder if that is the end that we really need to be shooting for. When you take out the kind of logic of competition, you get perhaps a logic of service, and uh, you can still argue about who should be served and what the priorities around that are, but it's attending to a community that is functioning within limits rather than one that's trying to kind of expand and extend those limits. It's bringing me back here to this goal that if, if our point is to enlarge people's capabilities to be healthy, empowered and creative within certain environmental limits, then competition is not a necessary or even ideal way to achieve that goal.
1: This is also surely about priorities as well. If universities compete first and foremost, then that will have significant consequences. But if they seek to serve first and foremost, And that will have other consequences that are perhaps much more attractive and important and meet these kind of goals. The future of the Australian universities is clearly going to be determined by that question of trust. If the public and communities can't trust the institutions, then their future is going to be bleak. I mean, that's such a big question much more broadly, isn't it? It doesn't
0: pertain just to universities.
1: How can they be trusted by their communities? Who are their communities? Well, their communities are their students, their potential students, their local you know, city, town, region, their nation, but all of those communities have to have a say and they all have to be balanced.
0: The thing is... Having a say, right? I mean, nominally, they do all have a say, but some of them have a much louder microphone than others and much deeper pockets than others. And one of the publics we're talking about is industry, it's employers, but they're resourced to speak in a way that those who sit outside the structures that enable people to lobby are just not. And so, balancing those different voices of the public, is there a sense in which we can't just leave that up to the free flow of competition in the market? I mean, who should get to set the settings of higher education?
1: One of the most important things about the Australian Universities Commission and its later forms was that it could be an advocate for all the different communities that the universities were to serve. Now, these bodies were able to balance off the different interests and communities that the universities were there to serve. And there's a strong argument for creating... A body that can really be an advocate for all the different communities.
0: It's really generative that idea. What would it look like to have a kind of Australian universities commission that has a consultative body or even a a governing body that had on it representatives of the different constituencies of the public that might be selected by random ballot like jury service? I mean, this is a kind of way of thinking about how you embed institutions in society in a way we we kind of haven't really seen. What we hear in public is a lot of kind of twiddling of these knobs of government subsidy or government control. But when you rethink what the settings are and how they're governed and who gets a say, then perhaps the whole thing looks different.
1: Yeah, so the key thing here is that if we're looking for explicit missions, the explicit mission is to balance off you know, the different interests of the communities. And you need to do that in a really structured way things like citizens assemblies and other forms of you know deliberative you know democratic action rely on really structured forms of communication to make sure that everybody's voice can be heard
0: is this a viable way we might govern the public in australia and particularly public education
1: structured ways that you can make sure that voices are heard is really important in any public activity and super important for public institutions.
0: I feel like we've travelled a long way here, but we've arrived at a place that is fundamentally about thinking through how you determine
1: what the good is for whom. And the reason that we've ended up in that place is because there's not a right answer to how much students pay. It really comes down to what serves the different communities and what those different communities want.
0: And let's not underestimate how big a revolution that is, because that sentence you just said, it didn't use a market sort of set of metaphors, it used an embedded and citizenship set of metaphors. And I think those are some of the concepts that are lacking from our public discussion about universities. They're absolutely there because these are all political framings, but they're not articulated, they're not drawn up to the surface. How do we get there? How do we get to a place where we get the governance right? What's the mechanism? What's the theory of change to bringing about governance change?
1: So I guess it's beholden on all of us in universities to advocate for them as institutions that should be owned by the Australian and other publics.
0: It seems that the debate we're in at the moment is entirely conducted within the terms of the current settings and if we want different settings then that needs to be our conversation rather than twiddling the knobs which is what's happening.
1: Every conversation needs to start with talk about what it is that universities can do for their communities rather than what it is communities can do for the universities.
0: It might be hard to look beyond the immediate crisis confronting universities at the moment, hard to look beyond the day-to-day reality of trying to teach online and keep the show going at home. But if we care about Australia's universities, it's absolutely crucial that we do. The explosive and disruptive implications of COVID-19 may have been unforeseen, but the consequences it has had for universities in Australia and for those who work in them they were not inevitable. They are being shaped by active decisions taken by governments and university leaders, who in turn are influenced by lobbying from different interest groups who are pursuing agendas laid out long before we'd ever heard of the virus. The settings we are being presented with now are not the only alternatives available. This is not the end of the story. This country is our common home. For better or for worse, we must live in it together. What kind of Australia do we want? How about a society which sustains and cares for each of us through our individual joys and hardships because together we sustain and care for it? How about an economy that serves society rather than the other way round, providing meaningful jobs and respecting the planet? For universities in Australia and all who rely on them, which is all of us, the consequences of COVID 19 and the government's reaction to it are only just beginning to unfold. This is going to be a long road, and I suspect there will be some depressing and dispiriting days ahead. So remember this whatever happens with Minister Tian's proposals, universities will remain crucial social institutions. And the conversation about what they should be and who they should serve in these our times is not one that will end with the latest round of proposals. In fact, it's a conversation that's been going on ever since the university began. This is the final episode in this series, but it won't be the last you hear from me, so don't delete the new social contract from your iDevice just yet. If you've been here for the whole ride, thank you. And please take a minute to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. If you've just joined, well, welcome. There are eight other episodes for you to enjoy. Launching and producing this series from the midst of lockdown has been a mammoth undertaking, and I would like to sincerely thank all the New Social Contract podcast guests and contributors. Thanks also go to our media partner, The Conversation, and all our Conversation article collaborators. You can read each of the linked articles on The Conversation website. And most of all, thanks go to the New Social Contract podcast team. They've all been working remotely and, believe it or not, some of them have not even met. Behind each episode are late nights and multiple takes and patient rescriptings that are a testimony to their talent, hard work and craft. The new social contract was made by Impact Studios, an audio production house at the University of Technology, Sydney, that combines audio storytelling with academic research. Thanks to Impact Studios executive producer Emma Lancaster, Impact Studios digital communications manager Ben Vozo, audio producer Alison Chan, journalist and researcher Kathy Marks, and sound engineer Adrian Walton. I'm your host Tamsin Peach. Thanks for joining me, and thanks for listening to the New Social Contract. Although the series is ending, you can continue the conversation on Twitter. Follow us at tnscpod or send us an email to let us know what you think email impactstudios at uts.edu.au.
1: The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.